turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians, and you see uh, chapter 1. What I want you to remember about the first chapter is Paul's really lining out to the Thessalonians. He's doing what a parent does for their children. I don't know, maybe uh, some of you have either been parents or had parents that have spoken to you like you're their children and reminded you what it was like on the day of your birth. And Paul, uh, what he does is he lines out in chapter 1, and he reminds them of the beginnings of the Thessalonian church. I think it's important uh, for us to remember where we came from. You know, uh, being in a small town, you hear older people especially go, they forgot where they came from. Well, uh, we, all are ten- we all tend to do that. You know, I, I forget that for years and years and years, or maybe just a couple of years, my dad had to change my diaper. And so when I get, lose my humility and I start to speak to him in pride, I need to remember that is the man that changed your diaper in the middle of the night. And by God's grace, he didn't tattoo you or pierce you with one of those little, you know, because they didn't always have the Velcro. They had the, the little clippy, you know, and it's just like my, my dad tells stories about when I was young, uh, very young, he would wake up in the middle of the night. And I'm the firstborn, so he, he wakes up and he had a routine. My mom would stay in bed. Uh, my dad would actually get up out of, like, I guess, some sort of muscle memory. He would wake up, he would sit up, he would walk to my room, he would pick me up out of the crib, set me on the changing table, if they had one of those, and he would change my diaper with never turning a light on. And I'm like, man, I'm lucky I don't have more physical issues from that. You know, I get pierced. Uh, and punctured, and, uh, but my dad didn't do that. He changed my diaper, took me to mom, and then mom would feed me. And we have to remember that about our own beginnings, that it's by God's grace we have faith at all. It's by God's grace that we even understand the things of God. His Holy Spirit has given us wisdom and comfort and, and education and, and the things of God. And, and so in chapter 1, he reminds them about how the church started, And in chapter 2, he talks about how the church was nurtured. Now, he's talking about himself, and he sees himself as the instrument that God used to nurture them from birth to, hopefully, the end being maturity. And as believers, we should never start and stop at the place of birth. If we remain spiritual babies, there are pitfalls for us as believers. And so Paul calls them on to maturity, And he only did it during about three weeks there. And then because of persecution and some problems, he had to leave the circumstances so the church that was planted there could continue to grow. And so uh, chapter 2, we could see, is about their nurture. Now, it's easy to see that in verse 1 through 12. He talks about their birth to maturity. He reveals to them his love for them and how he was a steward of God's grace, and how he invested in them and nurtured them as a mother loves and cherishes her children. And then in the last part of it, he talks about him being like a father. He says in verse 7 of chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 7 of chapter 2, but we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. We affectionately long for you. We were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had become dear to us, just like a mother. And he says, For you remember, brethren, our labor and our toil. We labored night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you, 
And we preached or we proclaimed the word is there to herald this, you know, like a town crier, you know, would say, hey, you got, hear ye, hear ye. And Paul says, I was like that among you. We might not be a burden to you. We preach to you the gospel of God. And he, in some of his letters, he says to them, free of charge. We didn't charge you a dime. But then he goes on, he says, you are witnesses, and God is also, how devoutly and justly and blamelessly we behaved ourselves among you who believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, he says, as a father does his own children. And so I kind of take on the outline that Warren Wiersbe does. He talks about this as Paul explaining their nurture, how they were born and then they were nurtured by Paul and his uh, fellow believers uh, in a way that was sacrificial and loving and yet bold and proclaiming that you would walk worthy of God, verse 12, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So Paul, his end goal was not to have uh, good church kids. It was to have good godly people that reflected the character of God and reflected the kingdom that they represent here on earth. You and I, as believers, we represent God's kingdom. He's called us into his kingdom. And because of that, when we live in this world that we currently live in, we represent it. We're like those who are in a foreign country, ambassadors. And all that they see in us represents the country at large that we're from. But many times, unfortunately, because we spend all of our time in this world, we start to reflect more what this world looks like than the world that we actually represent and we're ambassadors for. And so Paul says, I want you to walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and his own glory. We should reflect not only his kingdom and the, the rules thereof and the, the things that the character, but also his glory. God imparts his glory in us by his very presence. He says, verse 13, for this reason, we also thank God without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So we're going to stop there because in that first verse, he says, we thank God without ceasing. Remember, he began this epistle, this letter, by saying, we pray for you without ceasing. Well, one of the ways that he prays for the church in Thessalonica is by giving thanks. Many times when we pray, we give a list. And I'm the worst about this because I always see so many needs. And I'm like, Lord, can you do this, 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 and this? And sometimes in order for us to have proper perspective, we need to stop and we need to just give thanks for the things that God's already doing. I say that because this morning here I was reading the book of Numbers. I know that's everyone's favorite book in the Old Testament. But in there, it talks about the wilderness wanderings and how they start to complain against God. And they even get to the point where God has miraculously delivered them from the nation of Egypt who made them their slaves. And they were there for 400 years under the heavy hand of this newer Pharaoh that didn't know about how Joseph had blessed them as a nation. And so as they forgot why the Israelites were there, they started to make them slaves. And so God sends Moses to deliver, and he delivers them through many circumstances and miracles, and he delivers them through the Red Sea. God does, not Moses, but Moses is there as the mouthpiece. 
And as they get into the wilderness and God tells them to go to look at the land that he's going to give them, they, because of unbelief, stay in the wilderness for 40 years. And while they're there, God makes it. If you read towards the end and you skip to the end, you find out their clothes didn't wear out for 40 years. Their shoes, their sandals didn't wear out. They had provision of food every day. They're in the desert. And now that I've been there, I see that it's not, it, many times in numbers, it calls it a wilderness. And I'm picturing like, you know, like we have up the hill here. You, you know, there's animals going through, there's things to eat, you know, you careful of the berries, careful of the poison ivy, but there's, there's stuff going on. They can build homes, they can do all these things, but no, they're not in a place that's lush. They're in a desert. There's no water, there's lots of sand. Uh, it is able to be inhabited only by God's grace. And if you know anybody that's ever spent any time in a desert, uh, you have to have water. It's life. So they don't. They don't have food. They, didn't, they ran out of provisions, and they get in this wilderness, and God is miraculously providing for them bread from heaven that showers down with the dew of the morning. They pick it up. They grind it up. They, they boil it. They do all these different things to cook it, and they're able to sustain them. It has every nutrient in it to keep them alive and healthy and thriving. Uh, not just any food can you eat every day and it will be good for you all the time. You know, our taste buds go, oh, I just want something else. And that's what they do. They go, hey, this stuff's sustaining us. We're strong, all that stuff. But we, back in Egypt, we got all kinds of fish. We had all kinds of cucumbers, leeks and onions, which I'm like, I don't get that. I'm not a big fan. But they, they're saying we get things that have flavor. But if you think about some of those things, they all create heartburn. So they're really missing out on the things that, that give them heartburn. So they're like, they're despising the thing that God has provided because they want what the world had provided for so long. They're despising the bread from heaven, this miraculous bread that shows up at their doorstep. They just got to go gather it and cook it in the desert. And, and many times we're that way. We despise the provision of God. We don't give thanks for it. And so we become discontented. And then we start to complain against what God has provided for us. And so Paul, he gives thanks without ceasing because he says, when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it. It is not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. And so Paul gives thanks for them, and he, he's going to talk about their affliction. See, verse 13 through 20 is still about their nurture, but the things that are going to nurture them are the Word of God and something we all love, suffering, affliction. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I hate being uncomfortable. I hate it. As a matter of fact, Friday night, I decided, for whatever reason, that I would take my daughter camping. She's been wanting to camp. She's so excited. In the wintertime, we set up the tent in the living room, took up the whole thing, and uh, she slept in it. She loved it. She wants to go camping. So me being a dad, knowing this, haven't had any time to do it in the spring, and now it's summertime, and it's been 100 degrees for like two weeks. And I'm like, hey, it's 9 o'clock at night. We went to somebody's house for dinner. I'm going to surprise her. I'm going to set up the tent. Well, I go out, and I set up the tent. It's 9 o'clock at night. I come in, I am rolling with sweat. I've barely been moving. I've been, I've been moving, and I was like, wait a minute, they said the low 76. When's that going to be? Oh, 6 o'clock in the morning. What's, what, what's the temperature right now? So I get on my little app, and I'm like, oh, I wish I wouldn't have looked at that. It's 86. So 
I'm powering through because I'm hard, I'm hard going. Like once I decide I'm going to do something, I do it. So I set up the tent, and I told my wife, she's like, you're nuts. And uh, it's 70, so I'm, picture this, I'm getting ready to lay down. We're having our Bible time, we're talking, she's excited, she can't even get settled down. It's 10 o'clock already, and uh, I, I'm, I listen to the air conditioner kick on. <laughs> and I'm like, this is weird, because here I am, I'm spending money to cool this way too big house, and I'm outside, 10 feet away, sleeping in 90 degree heat, going, what is wrong with you? I forget why I was telling that story. Suffering. So, you know, we're willing to suffer for things that we want to do, okay? And so Paul, he talks to them about how they are continuing to be nurtured. They're being nurtured by the Word of God. And this is the most important key point of this passage, because we're going to talk more about suffering than we do about the Word of God. But this, this verse, this one verse is completely filled with important information. Because if they don't have this verse, verse 13, if they hadn't received the word of God, which from Paul, and welcomed it as not the word of men, but as the word of God, as it truly is, then they're going to cause it to question. They're going to doubt it. And they're not going to build their lives upon it. Jesus said in Matthew 7, he said, He who hears my word... And puts it to practice, this is like the wise man who built his house on a firm foundation of stone. Something that can't be moved, a poured foundation. But he who hears my word, these people have still heard the word, but basically don't put it to practice, are like the foolish who build their house on sand. And when the winds come and the waves crash, that house cannot stand. It will not. And so he says, we are thankful, and I don't cease to give thanks for you who have received the word of God, which you heard from us. You welcomed it as not the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. He uses two words for receive there. He says, you've received the word of God, which you heard from us. And then the same word, another word for receive is you welcomed it. Received and welcomed. So the receiving that he's talking about is actually the same word. Where'd it go? I can't read my own handwriting, so this could be difficult. The hearing of the ear. To accept from someone else. To receive it. So we receive things all the time, but we don't always welcome it, right? You might receive a guest at your house, but you may not always welcome them. You know, there's been a guy around the area selling books. He shows up at your door, he knocks on it, and he wants to talk to you forever. And you're like, I'm not going to talk to him. I'm not going to talk to him. And then he opens the door and you're like, hey. And then you're like, I don't need it. And he's like, oh, I, I understand that. But listen to this. And then it keeps on going. He was just here this week and he knocked on our door yesterday. And I was just like, I can't. I'm not doing it because it's going to go on forever. And it's Saturday. Come on. So um, maybe you guys handle things different. Now, if the J-dubs come to my door or if the, you know, the missionaries from the Mormon church, I'll talk to them on the porch. Um, but I don't need any more books. I can't read the ones I already own. But my point is, is sometimes you receive and you don't welcome. And so uh, he says here, they've received the word and they've welcomed it. They have the hearing of the ear. They received it. But when they welcome it, it's the idea of the hearing of the heart. You receive it into your heart. You allow it to have effect on your life. And I think this is important because in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, uh, Timothy is written to by Paul, and in there it says this. 
Um, that's First Timothy 3.16. It's not the same. Second Timothy 3.16, Paul writes to Timothy and he says this, All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, meaning that he may be whole, thoroughly equipped for every good work. That word there where he says it's given by inspiration of God, it's not that just that they had a dream and then they wrote it down, but the word means that it is rhema, God-breathed. God breathed the breath of life into Adam and Eve. He breathed the breath of life into these words. These aren't just words written on a page, but they are God-spoken and breathed and inspired. And so it's important to remember that when you're reading Scripture and you go, oh, I'm not sure if I believe this because I don't really like his take on this. These men weren't just writing whatever they felt like writing. They were writing what God was inspiring or breathing in them to write. And I, I, I say that because if you can say, well, God's Word in the Bible is only written by men, and it, I, I don't know if we can trust it, what you're doing is you're receiving it as if it was written by men and not by God. And what Paul writes here is this is written by God using the pen of men. And God is bigger than the weaknesses in men. And so if he inspires somebody, we can trust it and it's true. And in uh, 2 Peter chapter 1, he also says this through the pen of Peter. 2 Peter, not first. Man, I'm bad at this. Chapter 1, verse 20, he says, He says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And so Peter, again, saying basically the same thing, that God's word is inspired by God. And therefore, we can know that it's perfect, not because men are perfect, but because God is. And so the importance of the the Word of God. And so, remember, we're talking about how he's encouraging them because they've endured affliction. And he spoke about this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6, where it says there, "...you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit." He says, you received it in affliction. And then in chapter 3, verse 3, which we'll get to next week, he says, he says that no one should be shaken by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are appointed to affliction. And so as we're reading that, I want you to remember that as they've experienced affliction and they've heard the word of God, many of them probably believe the word of God because of the affliction that they were experiencing. But what we're going to find out is the affliction he's talking about is not so much affliction uh, like, you know, I was sick a couple weeks ago, but it's affliction from persecution. And so we want to dig a little bit more into what does it mean to be persecuted. And so when he talks about affliction, I want to define the word. It's like adversity or persecution or suffering, but all of it is pressure caused by circumstances. Now, he says you received it with joy in the Holy Spirit, and joy is something that we can have as believers despite what the circumstances look like in our life. Happiness is something that we can have, you know, based on circumstances. I was happy when I was no longer sick. I was happy to go camping with my daughter because it made her so excited. 
But when those things are taken away and I'm still sick or we don't get to go camping, I can't necessarily always be happy, but I can have joy because of my hope not being in that thing, but being in the Lord himself and what he has done for me. And so when he talks about affliction, he talks about pressure that's caused by circumstances. Well, fast forward to some of the affliction he's talking about. They, things that they suffered, they were persecuted. And so let me read with you uh, verse 14 on. He says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also, like them, suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. So there it is, the word suffering. Who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets and have persecuted us. Well, what does it mean to be persecuted? You can be persecuted for a lot of things, but persecution here means to be driven out and rejected. And if you look at the journeys of Paul at all, at just about every city he goes to in some form or fashion by a different people group, he is driven out and rejected by at least someone, and in many times by some group. So to be persecuted means to be driven out and rejected. And of all people, we know that Jesus, in many cases, was driven out and rejected by those he came to preach to, to to save. You know, they would not receive him. Jesus actually came to his own, to the people he was from, God's own chosen people, the Israelites, the Jews. And they, by and large, rejected his testimony of being the Son of God. They called him a blasphemer. He was persecuted. And then in verse 15, he continues on after saying they have persecuted and killed Jesus and have persecuted us, and they do not please God, and they are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. So he says they are contrary to us and to all men, meaning all men who are proclaiming this message. What does the word contrary mean? Do any of you have contrary children? or family members, that, or someone you work with that's contrary. I do, you know, and that's not uncommon. Um, contrary is the word that we get that means winds that blow against or hinder progress. So those that are contrary to the gospel, they would say, well, I'm not against it, I'm just not for it. And what I would say is that you can't, you're either for it or against it. You're either for Jesus or you're against him. If you think that you're in a neutral position, if someone says, well, I'm just neutral about God, then they're probably against him because if someone proclaims that message to them, they're going to blow back. They're going to be against. They're going to try and hinder the progress of that message. They're going to call it um, not politically correct. They're going to call it um, uh, rude or offensive you know, and in the Thessalonians, they knew what that was because in Acts chapter 17, when Paul proclaimed the message of salvation in Jesus alone, their testimony was this man has proclaimed this message that is contrary to what we can believe as Roman citizens. It's against Caesar. Caesar says he's to be worshiped. And so uh, because they would not stand for Jesus and they said it's not a true, they tried to hinder the progress. They, they gathered up evil men from the city and put them against Paul and Silas and all those who were with them. So they were against. 
And so in the same way, he goes on to say, after saying that they're, they do not please God and they are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. So um, let me say this before we go on to the suffering portion, even though I already have, that the way a Christian treats his Bible or her Bible and regards God's word shows exactly how he or she regards the person of Jesus Christ. And I say that because many times, uh, for a long time, I went to church and I heard the word of God and because I didn't receive it, I was not able to be a reciprocator of it, and I wasn't able to be changed by it. Back up in verse 13, he says, The word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. The word of God can have no effect on the person that says they believe in God unless they believe that word. Um, let me, and, and we know this from John chapter 1. John chapter 1, verse 1 where he basically says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So saying that it's more than just a Word, but those, the Word of God is a person. And then he says, he was in the beginning with God, make, making him a person, and all things were made through him, making him the creator, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Now go down to verse 14. Here's how we know that the word that we carry in our Bibles is the word of God, the person, because it says the word of God, or excuse me, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He lived among us, and we beheld his glory, and the glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so God himself in the word of God, but also the word of God being a person. So the word of God will only work effectively in your life if, number one, you believe it. And to restate that with what we've just read in John, Jesus, the person of Jesus, will only work effectively in your life if you believe and do what he says. So they received it and they welcomed it, and applying the word is as important as receiving it. We can't just hear it. We can't just welcome it. But we also need to take it and make it our own. We need to apply it. We need to work it out in our lives. And because they appreciated, received, and regularly applied God's word, he prepared them for adversity, which they were already experiencing. Paul was concerned that because of the persecution, because of the affliction they were experiencing, that they would give up that they would stop trusting the Lord and they would go back to what they were used to, which was trusting in their own understanding. So as we see that, and then as I come back to the suffering application and the, the affliction they, they were experiencing, Paul, I believe, is reminding them and informing them that they aren't the only ones who have suffered. You know, I, I was studying this passage and I couldn't help but look at this because in verse 14 he says, you became imitators of the churches of God in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen just like they did. 
See, the believers in Thessalonica, or Thessalonica were suffering persecution from the people, their own countrymen, the, where they came from physically, uh, the Gentiles primarily. And the Gentiles were stirred up against them by, guess who? The Jews. The Jews heard what Paul was teaching, and so he gathered up this group. They gathered up this group of evil men from the, the town, most of them Gentiles, and they, they brought them against Paul and his followers. But there was another group in Judea who had experienced the same exact thing. If you were a Christian in Jerusalem or in Judea, the region, or in the nation of Israel, you were persecuted for this because they saw Jesus as a blasphemer. They saw him as an anti of their religion. And in the, but in the same way, they, Jesus was the fulfillment of all that they believed. And so Paul is telling them, and I asked the question, why would he tell them about this other group that's suffering? Well, because when you're suffering and you think you're the only one, it's very easy to go, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm checking it in, I'm throwing in the towel, I can't do this anymore. But there's strength in numbers. If you know that there's others around the world experiencing the same persecution that you're experiencing, it's, it doesn't change your circumstances, but it does encourage you. I'm not the only one. And it's interesting because the suffering and the persecution that they're experiencing is the very same suffering and persecution that Jesus had promised them. John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus speaking to his disciples. He said this. He said, Indeed, the hour is coming, in verse 32, yes, and has now come that you will be scattered each to his own, and will leave me alone. Speaking of his apostles, that would be apostles, his disciples, you know, when he was arrested, you know, they all said that they'd stay with them, but even Peter, who was the most bold, kind of hang back, and he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to get crucified too, and so he stays back, and all the other disciples, you don't know where they went. They just scattered, and so as they scattered, and he told them they would, And yet I am not alone, Jesus says, because the Father is there with me. Verse 33, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Write that in your Bible promise book. You know, read one of those Bible promise books, and I guarantee, more than likely, that one's not going to be in there to encourage you. (laughs) But Jesus spoke it to encourage us. And in many cases... Uh, before I get to that point, I'll just go ahead and read. He says, in the world you will have tribulation, but here's the good news. Be of good cheer. I have already overcome the world. (laughs) I've already overcome. I've experienced it, and I've overcome it. And so when the churches read that, they go, our Savior suffered, and if we get to suffer, it's not we have to. We get to just like he did. We can identify with the person that saved us. And, um, you know, so that's meant to be an encouragement. So as Paul continues to try and encourage them, he tells them an example of other people living at the same time as them, living in a completely different nation, trying to live for Jesus and saying, hey, guess what? They're being persecuted too. There's confidence in numbers. Jesus promised we would be persecuted if we would desire to live godly. Paul writes to Timothy in Second uh, Timothy um, chapter 3, verse 12, he said, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. 
But the key fact is that they will suffer persecution for righteousness' sake. Not for the sake of being weird. We all know stories that have made it on the news because some guy is being weird and he's made a big fool of himself. You know, we all have heard about the Westboro Baptist Church who has gone around and picketed people's funerals and has bashed, you know, homosexuals and has not shown the love of Christ, but has made a big splash. And many of them, I guarantee, justify the news coverage and the bashing of them, and they go, Jesus said we'd suffer for being righteous. But here's the deal. They're not suffering for being righteous. They're suffering for being weird. They're suffering for being bigots. They're suffering for being hate-filled and calling themselves Christians. And the world takes it, and they throw it on the TV and try to discredit Jesus all over again. It's a, it's a scar. But true followers of Jesus will be persecuted because their lives are so radically different from those people and from the world. We will suffer persecution because we love people that aren't lovable. We'll suffer persecution for showing grace to people that don't deserve it. We'll suffer persecution for not lying when our boss says, if you lie, I'll give you the promotion. You'll lose your job. That's how it goes. That's the world system. Persecution for righteousness' sake is to be praised in the kingdom of God, no matter the cost. So, Paul reminds them, and he informs them that there are many who are being persecuted. And in the book of Acts, in the very beginning, uh, many of the disciples, they go out and they proclaim the name of Jesus, and the religious leaders of their nation say, you can no longer speak in this name. And they do it anyway. And because of that, they get thrown in jail. And you know what happens is the disciples, as they're leaving, they, they praise the Lord. They're jumping up and down. Thank you, Lord. We got to suffer for your namesake. It's a badge of honor to them. And so I love this because there's a hope. They're living for a different kingdom. So Paul lets them know that everywhere Jesus is proclaimed, evil men seek to silence the messenger. Paul encourages them that evil men are going to do what they do. But don't worry. Here's the Here's the encouraging part. Verse 16. They're forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved. They're forbidding us to proclaim the gospel of salvation. But they don't have the last word. God does. So as always, he says, to fill up the measure of their sins. They're piling up sins that will be an account against them. When God is before them and they stand at the throne judgment before their creator, They're going to have to make an account. They're going to have to answer for all that they've done. And he says, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. They will get their just reward. They will be judged by our creator. They will be judged by our God. So that's the encouraging part, right? Because, you know, I always look around, and maybe you guys don't do this, but many times I look around and I go, man, you know, God has blessed me, but man, it seems like he's blessing that guy That is completely, he doesn't love his family. He doesn't care about anybody but himself. And he's prospering. Why? Lord, why why is he being rewarded? And what the Lord says to that is, he's not being rewarded. Actually, he will get his reward. He will get the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is everlasting life. Our hope is not in worldly rewards or riches. Our reward is in heaven. 
That's where we're supposed to gain them. That's where we're supposed to store them up. And in many ways, they're already experiencing the wrath of God because the wrath of God comes upon those who are against God. Now, there's eternal wrath that is measured up against them, but here's the deal. There's also wrath they're experiencing now. If anyone rejects godly wisdom and lives according to the wisdom of men, even in this life, they will suffer the consequences. You want to live for yourself? No problem. But your family's not going to love you back. They're going to live for themselves too. And down the road, you're going to look at it and go, why are they so selfish? Why are they so mean to me? That's what they learned. Wisdom is justified by all her children. If you read Romans chapter 1, verse 8, he actually speaks about how God's wrath is already coming upon the sons of disobedience. And I'm just going to read through it real quick. He says in verse um, Romans chapter 1, verse 18, it says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their actions suppress the truth and unrighteousness because what may be known of God is manifest in them. It's revealed in them for God has already shown it to them. God's creative power, God's majesty, the fact that he is the Lord is revealed in creation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Part of God's judgment on them, because they said, no God, because they don't serve God, here's the reality, they serve creatures instead. They serve passions and hobbies instead, uh, instead of their creator. They're slaves to their very own appetites. And so God, what he does is he says, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new appetite. You can serve me instead of stuff. You can serve me instead of your habits. You can be a slave of righteousness instead of a slave to your sinful passions. So how can I know if I'm free or if I'm still enslaved to sin? I ask that question because many times we stop there. John chapter 8, though, he says this. How do I know if I'm a slave or if I'm free? How do I know if I'm storing up God's wrath against me or if I'm actually living for righteousness sake? Well, in John chapter 8, verse 31, it says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide or if you remain in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, Well, we're Abraham's descendants, and we've never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? We're free people. And they were thinking from a worldly perspective, I'm not a slave. No one owns me. I get to do as I please. And what Jesus answered them was, Most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a son, excuse me, and a slave does not abide in the house forever. But a son 
meaning one who has been born again, abides forever. Therefore, if the Son of God makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And so we need to remember this, you know, that he says, whoever abides in my word. Well, God's word produces in us faith that brings us to a place of salvation. He reveals to us our sinfulness, and he reveals to us that there's an answer for that, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. And we learn that salvation is offered as an opportunity to us, as, and we're born again because of that belief. But the problem is, is that we stop there. And what God says in his word also is that the same word that saves you, the same word that reveals to you your need for a Savior, is also able to light your path and be a lamp unto your feet to help you to walk in this salvation and remain in it. We need to continue in faith. And so God leads us like a shepherd. And um, in verse, uh, so when they're suffering persecution, it purifies and increases the church of God. They're suffering persecution. They're experiencing bumps in the road. They have people that are trying to hinder the message from going forth. And Paul tells them that not only are you nurtured by the word of God, but guess what? As a believer, the suffering that you experience as a believer will also nurture your faith because it melts away. It's like a a stove that's turned up when you're boiling something. You know, when you boil water, it removes the impurities. It, It kills anything that's in there that could hurt you. And in the same way, in the life of a believer, when the heat gets turned up by persecution, or by problems, what happens is that the heat gets turned up and all the impurities in our lives are killed by that persecution. Or you know, we, we walk away from the Lord, you know, because of persecution. But the reality is, what he says, um, is that this suffering and this persecution actually helps our faith. And it says that in Romans 5. <clears throat> As a segue... Romans chapter 5. He says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we continue to stand. He says, And rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory, we shine bright in tribulation, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character. Character produces hope. And our hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So persecution can grow us. So, verse 17. He says, But we, brethren, having been taken away from you for a short time in presence, though we have not been taken away in heart, endeavored more eagerly to see your face with great desire. Therefore, we wanted to come to you, even I, Paul, time and again. But look at this. Satan hindered us. For what is our hope? What is our joy or crown of rejoicing? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. So he says to them, He says, we long to be with you. And Paul longed to be with them physically in their trouble. He wanted to be with them. He didn't want to run away and go, you guys are suffering, I'll be over here. He wanted to be with them to encourage them. But he was still with them in heart. He was still praying for them. And then he also, notice, 
He looked past his present circumstances to their or his and their future hope. His hope, his joy, his glory, his crown. Now, many people would say, of course you want a crown, Paul. You think pretty highly of yourself. You think you're the bee's knees. You know, you think you're the end-all, be-all. But what Paul, the word he's using for crown there is not a crown that says, I'm king. Because Paul saw Jesus as the king. His crown that he's talking about is the crown they would place on the winner of an Olympic game. It was the crown of, you know, it would have leaves on it and be very ornate, and they would take it and it would give it to the person that got first place. Paul says, my crown is not to be a king. My crown is that you would walk worthy of the faith, worthy of the Lord, and that you would be, look at this, in the presence of our Lord when he comes. His crown, his reward for doing everything God gave to him was not a position. It was a people. It was God's people walking by faith and arriving at their final destination, which is the very face and the presence of Jesus. After surviving and thriving through this life where they're experiencing great persecution. Paul wanted to encourage them. You are my joy. You are my glory. You are my crown. And Jesus was the same way. He had the heart of Jesus. You look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Paul implores, or excuse me, the writer of Hebrews, I think it was Paul, but he implores the Hebrew believers he, after speaking about all those who have walked by faith before him and them, he says, Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross despising the shame, and he has sat down at the right hand of God, the throne of God. So he endured the cross, despising the shame, but he did it because he was focused on the joy that was going to come after that. The very birth of the church, the very calling out of an assembly of people, out of the darkness, out of an enslaved life to sin, into the glorious light in the kingdom of God. He knew he was getting ready to suffer persecution. He knew he was going to be put to death at the hands of sinners. He knew that his judgment would come from an ungodly leader. And yet he endured it, knowing beforehand that that suffering would lead to glory, that that suffering would lead to the birth and the salvation of a people who had no hope apart from him. And so I love that. So Paul encourages them. He says, there's people in Jerusalem suffering, in Judea, and, and Jesus himself suffered. But he looked beyond the suffering in order to be able to endure. And so as I read this message, and as I, or as I speak, and as I, I've read this passage, I have to say that I was very um, convicted. And here's why. Um, the church in Thessalonica had suffered great persecution from the very beginning. But in chapter 2, we see that, um, well, in chapter 1, we see that even though that was the case, that their faith was made known around the whole region 
of area they were from. Paul didn't have to share the gospel in their region because their faith was so well known, because they had endured, and, uh, and they were being persecuted, and they were being pushed out. And in many ways, because Paul wanted to minister to them, it says there, we just read, that Satan hindered them from coming back to them to encourage them. And the word hindered there actually means that there was, there was log jams, there was problems on the road. Um, he says there that they were hindered, and the word for hindered means a broken road that blocks travel. And if you've ever lived on the other side of a low water bridge, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you, you got a broken road that's been washed over that you can't travel across. So Paul had been stopped by Satan in a practical way from going and seeing the Thessalonians. So he was concerned about them. What we find out is that Paul could no longer take it. He wanted to know that they were still doing okay. So he ends up sending Timothy to go because Timothy was somewhere where there was no blocked roads, spiritually or physically. And so um, I guess I wanted to ask these questions I posed to myself after studying this message. Are you enduring for the crown of life from Jesus, or are you enduring through your week to get to the weekend? I'm guilty, by the way. Do you endure through hardships in order for the promise of a short weekend, or do you endure what you go through each day, day in and day out, for the hope of heaven and for the, the crown of glory that will be people in the presence of the Lord? Are you looking to please God or are you looking to be comfortable and avoid all suffering? Again, I've been guilty of this. Um, are you persecuted because of Jesus, or do others even know that you're a Christian? I say that, and I think about my weeks at work and how many times I actually talk about the Lord and why I have hope, or, you know, or even address a, a lie, a cultural lie, because of what Jesus has told me. I don't experience persecution at work. I, I don't. I don't get driven out of conversations because I'm living for the Lord. I, I, many times I get driven out of conversations because I'm a smart aleck. You know? I get driven out of conversations because they're tired of hearing my dumb jokes. But I don't get driven out of conversations because I want people to know Jesus and the hope that I have. So do people know that you're a Christian? It, let me tell you, they should know you're a Christian. You should look for those opportunities. You, you should share. You should have boldness. I, somebody prayed that this morning in our, our prayer meeting, and I was like, that's perfect. That's where we're going this morning. These Thessalonian believers had some boldness, and they had every reason to zip their trap and not speak. It could cost them, but they had boldness. And because of that, everyone knew about Jesus. May they know, no matter the consequences, and may our joy be others with us with Jesus for eternity. So my last note, Paul to this church, his message to them is don't give up. You're not giving up, but continue to not give up. Keep going. Keep moving forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. So let me ask you, how do we do that? How do we move forward in the power of the Holy Spirit? I'm not going to go to a verse. I'm going to explain some truths. Number one, the word of God needs to be in you. They received the word of God in much affliction. It was in them. It was keeping them steadfast no matter what this life brought. Number two, the people of God around you. 
You need to be surrounded by other believers regularly. It will embolden you. It says of Paul that when he was in Athens and he shared there and he, he was broken by all of the, the idols that were there, it says that when Timothy arrived, after, after Paul had been there for some time, when Timothy arrived there, Paul spoke with great boldness. Actually, it wasn't Athens. It was in 1 Corinthians. But my point is, is that even Paul, when he was surrounded by other believers, he had this extra charge of boldness to share the truth. So the word of God in you, the people of God around you, and the glory of God before you. Do you focus on the glory of God as the end goal? Because if you do, then whatever happens in between now and the end goal will be for that purpose. That will be what gives you focus. That will be what gives you boldness. That will be where your hope is placed. And so if you lose your hope in something else, it won't matter to you. You know, I often watch these movies, war movies. If you've ever seen The Patriot, and you see uh, Mel Gibson, and he, of course, is always showing himself in great pain, and I don't know how he gets all those veins to come out of his neck when he's in agony. But my point is, I watch that movie, and I see him lose his family member, one son, after another get killed, and he keeps going. And I truly believe it's, be- and I truly believe there are men that were like that in that particular war and many others. And it was because their hope was not in not losing and having casualties. Their hope was in freedom, you know, just like every other movie he's been in. You know, he, he's always going towards the end goal. He was driven not by circumstances, but by the end result. And if your end result is to see people come to know Jesus, it won't matter how many people persecute you. It won't matter when Satan tries to hinder you through circumstances. It won't matter if you lose friendships because of it or if you're uncomfortable because you're sharing something in public and you're not used to it. Because the end result will be people that you get to usher in the very presence of God for all eternity. And that will be your joy. That will be your hope. That will be your crown. So 